and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. So I say good morning to you or good day, wherever you are on this uh, lovely October Saturday, and we're very glad to have you, uh, no matter where you are listening across the nation. Um want to let you know that... Um, we have a very uh, unique show today, as always. We're going to be zeroing in more on the, um, I guess, mechanics, shall we say, of um, what creates a, a victim impact statement and uh, other things uh, surrounding that matter because I've had a lot of inquiries on my website, so we're just trying to impart information. And who better but to have our very good friend, um Attorney Advocate, Super Duper, Michelle S. Cruz with us. Super Duper. uh, Yes, Super Duper. So uh, before we bring her in formally, just want to say good morning, Delilah. So glad to have you back at the controls. I missed you. (laughs) (laughs) You do fine. You really, you can do more than you think you can. And I'm really excited about this show for several reasons, because I think the information about victim impact statements is, you know, very important for your listeners to hear um you know mm-hmm. anything anyone who is going to trial for a specific crime is is going to need this so you know why don't we jump in and have you briefly um go over your personal experience donna is kind of your credentials in what you do and <coughs> creating these victim impact statements for other people. So if you want to just go over your experience and let the listeners know your background, um, I think that would be very helpful at this point. Okay. We'll start out with that. Sounds good. Um, I am a homicide survivor. My dad was murdered in 1981, so it's it's, uh, coming up next April on 35 years. Boy, how time flies. And um, my dad was killed in Hartford, Connecticut, by a career criminal, uh, two-time murderer, drug dealer, a bank robber, et cetera, et cetera. And um, he actually came up for uh, parole, which he would he should not have been eligible for, uh, two or three years ago now. And I'm I'm happy to say that Michelle Cruz was very much a part of that and helped affect it a very positive outcome. Um, uh, but so am I. My initiation into this club was because of that, and I was one of the um, founding members uh, way back when in the early 80s of Survivors of Homicide under Gary Merton from um, Vernon, whose daughter was strangled and murdered, um, and he was the president, but I was on the board. I was um, I was uh, an officer and very active with regard to uh, getting public awareness out in the media. We did fundraisers with golf tournaments, which they still do, uh, all kinds of things when, when, when services were just were just starting out. And uh, as part of that, I wanted to let you know that, you know, my, my situation is unique in that we did not come up for trial until six and a half years later uh, because this person was incarcerated in another state for other crimes. And when you're a crime victim, that is indeed a lifetime um, waiting six and a half years uh, for things to happen. And all the, all the things that could go wrong uh, seemingly did go wrong, and more so. And there's, you know, particular blogs that I can refer you to, but there's so many, uh, so many mistakes made and so many things that should not have been, uh, should not have happened, did happen. But suffice it to say, this person got... Um, 50 years to life for for killing my father and 25 years to life for accessory to murder for an accomplice in a bank robbery one month later. And uh, he has been serving time 
ever ever since then. And as a part of being with survivors of homicide, part of my indoctrination into this was to do volunteer work, and I went to the Hartford Superior Court often and um, uh, volunteered to be a, a, a court escort with other families um, going through this. Uh, one, as an example, was the uh, Peter Caron case, which was very high profile, the Prospect uh, Cafe uh, murder where, uh, where um, he was killed by a, an assailant who, uh, you know, fl- fled the law, Adam Zack, and uh, was, was uh, a fugitive for over 25 years, which had been on America's Most Wanted, and so well, didn't you cases. didn't you um, accompany um, accompany Addie Carone to court? And did you help her with yes. her victim impact yes. statement for that trial? Um, actually, I did not. Um, I I was there to provide emotional support for her and you know some education in terms of what would happen <laughs> within the system. I mean, she had part and parcel. Um, her her prosecuting attorney who had since passed away and a lot of other people that were on her side. But I was there as a, a volunteer, um, you know, fellow member of Survivors of Homicide. So my my um my involvement at that point wasn't that that hands on, but I distinctly remember us going in the bathroom and she just had a total, total, total meltdown. And um throwing purses, screaming, crying. And I think those kinds of things was where I was able to be affected, but she's very much a lady, and she wouldn't have done that in open court, and had I not been there, you know, perhaps it would have been a little different. So, um, and also Well, in your own, in your... In your father's yeah. original case, were you yep. um, were you able to give a victim impact statement in in that phase of it? And maybe you can explain, or maybe Michelle can explain yep. at that point. What point in a trial does the victim impact statement come in, and why? Right. Well, I'll I'll just say briefly, and then Michelle, maybe you can elaborate. In in our case, and this is probably in most cases for for a criminal trial, because my understanding is you you don't do one in a civil trial, and Michelle can tell you why. But the um, during the the sentencing phase is when we had our 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 first you know time up at bat, so to speak, and my mother and I were there for the three week trial, and each of us delivered a victim impact statement in, I believe, 1987 um, to to the judge. Um, and so that was our first opportunity. And then my next opportunity wasn't until years later when Michelle and I and my family went to the Board of Pardons and Parole. Michelle, you want to take a crack yeah, at I that? Mean, elaborate. Uh, elaborate me. Well, just in terms of is that, you you give statements at the sentencing phase of a criminal trial and for either a pardons hearing or a board of a, a, a parole hearing. Is is that correct? Yeah, every state is a little different. Like in uh, Massachusetts, you give the impact statement at plea, at sentencing usually. Plea and sentencing yep. are usually the same. In Connecticut, you can give a victim has a right to give a impact statement at plea and at sentencing. And then most states allow victims to give an impact statement of some sort at the parole um, hearing. And some states are great, and they will video record it so that the victim doesn't have to come back all the time. But um, Mm -hmm. And then there's other victims who want to come back regardless to ensure that the offender stays in jail. But, I mean, every state's a little different. Like Connecticut, there's those two opportunities. For the most part, though, in Connecticut – the victims aren't told that they're allowed to give the impact statement at plea, but they are told they can give it at sentencing. And it's, you know, like you said, it's it's an important phase of the criminal justice process. It's really the first opportunity for a victim to really participate in the system in a way that's meaningful, not just as, I mean, most of the time the, you know, the family is not called as a witness, and if they are, it's really limited. So this is the mm-hmm. first time the you know this the person who's going to invoke a sentence, whether it's a jury or the judge, really gets to hear how the crime has victi- has impacted the victim, 
and hear about the victim because usually there's just a snippet of who the victim was and that's it. And um, so it's really important. And I think oftentimes, unfortunately, and I think we'll probably get into this a little bit more, but oftentimes, unfortunately, the victims and the family are told, you know, kind of at the last minute there's this statement you have to do. And it really should be at the beginning because it's a process um, for the family to really take paper to pen and really describe all the ways the crime has affected them and who the victim was. Um, And, you know, my general rule is never provide, and prosecutors can object, but I never would advise a victim to provide the statement before they actually give it because a lot of times the prosecutor or an advocate might say, oh, that's too lengthy or you don't want to say that. And my my golden rule is um, don't ask for permission, ask just go forward and if they don't if the judge doesn't like it they'll stop the victim but for the most part i've seen most judges allow the victim to say whatever they need to say um you know they're Mm -hmm. not they're not really into micromanaging what the victim needs to say and it's really you know it's really it's a kind of like a i mean you you know from your experience it's one i want that offender to stay in jail or i want this particular sentence or these parts of the sentence are important to me and two, I want the person to, you know, I want the person to know how they, I want the person in the community to know how this crime has impacted me generally, you know, as a person. But isn't it true? Also, the thing that, the thing that I, I, I see, and we we stated it so clearly, is that what you you referenced earlier is that the the judge or the panel and other people they just. They know virtually nothing about the victim, and they know a lot about the offender. So it's our job, unfortunately, we have to paint the picture from many different um, views of, you know, what value. uh, This person was of value, and this is what the person looks like, and this is what they did in life, and these were their aspirations, and these were the losses, because it's not really part of the you know, quote unquote formal trial process. So we 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 have to take on that responsibility of giving them all this information, you know, very comprehensively. And, and I can understand where I'm getting these these written things uh, I've even seen online, even from survivors of homicide. Which, although they should know, I have to write a victim impact statement. I don't know where to begin. Well, and that's a typical thing that people are saying, Michelle. Right? Yeah, and I think that, you know, when I've had, you know, when I was a state victim advocate in Connecticut, I was approached at one point by an individual who asked me to help kind of not write but choreograph how that victim impact statement should come across. And it involved several murders and several crimes. And um, and for me, it's the way, I mean, the I've seen judges. Judges are in court all day long. If you're if you're in a case, or the probation parole officers, if you're in a case involving homicide, you're in front of a judge who hears homicides all the time. If you're in a, in a court involving sex assault, that judge hears sex assaults. Like that judge has heard a bazillion cases, and sometimes judges, you know, despite their best efforts, and prosecutors, despite their best efforts, and we won't go to town on them right now. But they get kind of muted. That, you know, this isn't yeah. just this isn't just another murder. This isn't just another DUI. This is a person who had meaning in this family. And what I often, you know, in, in that case where the person asked me to kind of figure out, like, how would I organize this? You know, I I broke it down. You know, there's a couple different crimes, um, and one involving the individual, one involving the family, and I broke it down to how that crime impacted the individual, the crime against them how the crime impacted, you know, the persons that were harmed in that family. And then on top of that, the way – then I, I also said you might want to break it down, too, to emotional harm, financial impact, um, physical impact, because there was a physical assault on this person. Like, figure – you know what I mean? Because sometimes right. it's overwhelming. And that's where someone like you, who's, you know, a step back but has that experience – can really help that victim make their voice heard because you don't want 
you know, the judges hear lots of impact statements, too, and you want the judge to hear you. And I remember this one young girl, she was a victim of a sex assault, and she gave this offender went to plea twice, and then finally we had a trial. Each time he went to plea, he he rejected the the judge's offer. So this victim read her impact statement three times. But Uh she had written this eloquent, powerful impact statement, and she read it three times. And every time, because of the way it was written, because of the fact that she was in touch with how this crime impacted her, which is something that's very hard sometimes for the victim to take that Band-Aid off and be like, this is how I've been hurt, and to be that vulnerable. But she was vulnerable, and mm-hmm. every time the entire courtroom, and like two out of three times it was packed, everybody was stunned to silence and were wiping tears off their face because she had the ability to really communicate to the judge, this is how this crime impacted me. You know, and this is what I've lived with for the last, you know, I think it was four or five years. And so not everybody, you know, can do that. And having someone kind of, in, you know, what you do, which is interview them, you know what to look for, you know the information to gather, you know how to organize it. Having someone do that is invaluable because I've seen judges change their sentences when I was a prosecutor based on the impact the crime had on the victim. Sometimes it's a longer sentence. Sometimes the victim is looking for a specific order, whether it's a stay away, a no contact, restitution, or counseling, or, you know, there there are, there are specific things, because sometimes, you know, the victim may not get the sentence they want, but there's other things they're looking for. Right. Sometimes yeah. it's a piece of jewelry that was stolen. And out of everything you've robbed for me, this one item I want back. Like there, there are certain things that that can happen if you're clear about what you want. And that is a really that's not an easy thing to do because you're you're impacted in so many different ways. You have right. to revisit the crime. You have to go through all that. Um, and it's but it's the only opportunity the victim really has to tell to one stand up to the offender to tell the court how they've been impacted, and to try to get their little chunk of justice because the justice system is, is you know, you're only going to get a small piece of justice because what really should happen is not legal in most of our states. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, too, Michelle, is that victims do not know by and large that they could ask for these things. You know, restitution, uh, they, they qualify for you know, uh, social security benefits under somebody else if it was a workplace violence uh, case, you know, um, workers' compensation. Maybe maybe they just, and I, I, this is probably a don't. I mean, you want to get emotional relief in some, in, in some respect, but I wouldn't recommend that someone get up there and for 30 minutes just rail on the victim and, you know, spew four-letter words or whatever. Um, that may be one of the things you want to do. There might be other people where they they want to give it an opportunity, and again, this is rare, to for, forgive the perpetrator. I mean, it just depends. There's many of these other things that they can ask for, but victims do not know that. And by and large, I mean, I don't know. You can tell better than I. Um, do, do the victim advocates that typically assist or give them a template or a you know, a, a sort of a cheat sheet, do they tell them these things? I think it varies. I think it varies state to state, victim advocate to victim advocate. I've worked with, you know, some amazing victim advocates when I was a prosecutor who really, who really, you know, helped the, the victim. Heart. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. in, in a way that was really meaningful. And then I've seen some, you know, in in my own case, when I was asked to do a victim impact statement, they asked for my statement ahead of time, and I said, no, I'm not going to give it to you because I didn't want – a lot of times I would hear – not a lot of times, I have heard, because I don't want to dissuade victims from working with advocates, but I have heard victims, advocates say, oh, it should only be a page, or it should only be this, or it should only be that, and it's like, no, it should be no. whatever you need it to be. And 
you are right about if the if the victim goes up there and just starts swearing and yelling, what happens is people tune them out. So you want to be able to have your voice heard, but also if you're angry or you're upset, you want that to be known. So finding that balance between, you know, harnessing your rage at this person who's, you know, harmed you or taken the life of someone you love or, you know, raped you or raped someone you cared about, harnessing that and making it into this is what it feels like for me, a day in the life of me, or this is what I've gone through, or this is, you know, the pain you caused. Um, But the other thing is working with someone like you is helpful because the other thing that happens, I have, you know, I've seen offenders who just, they don't care. So the victim gives an impact statement and the offender doesn't care and the victim needs to be prepared for that because you're, you, you want the offender to be impacted. They may not be, but the judge most likely will be. Um, And you're right. I've also seen victims who have gone up and given their impact statement and have forgiven the offender, but asked that the offender be held accountable. And that's incredibly powerful like I'm not going to allow you to take a m- one more second of my life and have me wrapped up in hate, and I've forgiven you, but you still need to be held accountable for what you did. And that, I mean, the judge in that case was speechless because the mm-hmm. offender could care less, and the victim had more empathy for someone who could care less and who harmed him than the offender showed at all. Um, right. I, 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 I just can't imagine. I mean, I've also seen... A couple of cases that I've read about where the um or that I've seen even I think it was uh uh with um help help save the next girl and, and Bill Harrington as an example go over to the uh, offending the perpetrator's family and reach out to to that mother that father and give them a hug or words of you know I care and I'm sorry and that is that is incredibly powerful as well. Yeah, because, I mean, but it's it, it's so, like, there's no cookie-cutter response right. to crime. The, I mean, the biggest message, I think, is that however you feel, what wherever you are on the spectrum of being impacted by crime and what you want to do is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Finding an avenue to express that is really the key of the victim impact statement. Right. Well, one thing I wanted to ask is, I can let Delilah jump in after that. Um, you do then, you do have the right to tell the the prosecuting attorney or the defense attorney or the judge to say, no, you cannot have this in advance, you know, in other words, to use against me. Uh, and um, the other thing is it's perfectly okay to have another person, whether it be your family member or someone from the court represent you in reading it if you think you're going to be too emotional and can't impart it yourself. Are those two points correct? I mean, I I don't know about every single state, but for the most part, I never, like when I said, in my case, when I said I wouldn't give the impact statement, I basically said I'm still working on it. I'm not done with it. I Mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily say I'm not giving it to you, (laughs) I'd be sneaky, unfortunately, because if you yeah. say you're not going to give it to them, they're, they're, they might become upset. So I just said I'm still working on it. And technically I was. Like I would look at it, you know, the night before I'd read it. Um, yeah. And then there's, you know, in Connecticut I've seen advocates say things like only the victim advocate and the victim can make, give the impact statement. And that's not actually true. The victim can ask permission of the court, and the court's, usually amenable to have anybody the victim chooses to read that impact statement should it come to the point where either they can't read it or they become unable to read it in the middle of it. Um, You know, it's the victim's voice. And, you know, the victim has a right to say how the crime has impacted them, what they want to see for sentencing. And, you know, and a little bit like if it's a murder case, they have a right to say, who the victim was. And, you know, I've seen victims who are so traumatized that they can't even write a paragraph. So they, they need someone to help them walk it through. 
And a lot of times you have people who have been victimized who never had a voice in the first place. So this might be their first foyer into actually having a voice in anything that happens in their life because offenders pick people on purpose, you know, often that are silenced because of other issues or other things that have happened in their life. Um, so finding finding their voice may be even more complicated. My daughter is singing in the background. Hold on. Excuse me. <laughs> Emily. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you need a little lightness <laughs> here. <laughs> but I mean, well, so you know, going back to going go back ahead, to Delilah. what you talked about earlier, Michelle. Um, the victims are not necessarily notified that they are going to have this opportunity to even do an, a victim impact statement. So I would assume that a lot of people come into court not even knowing that this is available to them. So they may not have time to prepare it as as they as they should. So at what point do you feel like they should be notified that this is available and this is what they do and perhaps you know someone like Donna get get with them early and mm-hmm. begin it even be you know well well before the well trial before. even starts and maybe keep a journal and and keep your thoughts written down so that when the time does come all of this information and all of these emotions can be professionally put into a document that can be presented to the court yeah i mean i i unfortunately most of the court um that I have experienced, the victim needs to advocate for themselves. And when I was a prosecutor, I would sit down with the victim and I would tell them during the first meeting, you know, especially if it was a superior court case, which is a second level um, prosecution versus district court in Massachusetts, I would say, okay, at some point I'm going to be asking you to write an impact statement. And here are kind of the things that you know, would be in an impact statement. And then I list out, I had like a list of all the different sentencing options from jail to probation to counseling. You know, and I, because I knew that a lot of times the victims wanted humongous sentences and in Massachusetts, a lot of times that just wasn't happening at the time. But I would tell any victim of any crime, whether it's a property crime, identity theft, all the way to murder, any crime, you have a right to have a voice in the process. And, you know, there there are often, you know, there's often this element in the courts where people want to control the victim or control, you know, the court process and get cases moving. It's that factory system. And the victim really needs to be able to say, listen, the impact statement is really important to me. Where What are my opportunities to provide an impact statement? You know, is it a plea, sentencing, and can you make sure I'm notified of those dates? Because it is really important, and I would begin as soon as, as soon as you realize you have a right to an impact statement, just begin. Because I, I really believe that, you know, if you've been victimized by crime, you know, it's hard to revisit what happened, and so, you know, writing down how it's happened over a period of time, as as opposed to, you know, a week before you're going to be faced with the offender because that's right. traumatic is a better approach because the the more time you can put into it and the more thought you can give it the more that you can have a say in what happens and often if it's you know a violent crime and you're going to have to face the offender trying to write in that environment can be you know, debilitating because you're thinking about seeing the offender again. Maybe you haven't seen this person ever. Maybe this is a person who murdered your family member or maybe it's someone who's physically harmed you and you're scared and you're frightened and you haven't seen them in a year or two since the crime. Having all that worked up and then, oh, and I'm going to write about how this impacted me, might be, you know, that may that may not be, you may not be able to do that. Um, so, Having someone who can kind of tease out what's important and know what questions to ask. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Donna, we kind of went through that with the uh, parole hearing. I met with you and your family members, and we kind of went through, 
you know, what you wanted to have happen at the at the parole hearing and what things you needed, like ad- anonymity <laughs> and um, and <laughs> yeah. all, like kind of like that kind of questioning process and knowing what was important to you and your family when you're going to give this, pro- you know, this impact statement. That's the same thing you're doing for the the victims that were in, involving impact statement is what's important to you for this outcome and is that a reasonable expectation if no what else can we ask for what are the things that you need the court to know about this crime and the victim or and you and is there a financial component is there a cost because a lot of times the financial component is completely never even addressed and there's remedies for that you know there's there's um you know like in Connecticut they have the the um the judgment that you can get the restitution order that is good for 10 years that's amazing um where victims can say okay i had this much out of pocket expenses because of you know i was shot and i have medical bills you can get the restitution order and then you can go file it in civil court and you can get the money back so there's a yeah, lot of that, different things that is amazing for 10 years yeah mm-hmm. <clears throat> is it similar in mass no, <laughs> not at all. Um, in Massachusetts, so the rest, okay, so in, in Connecticut, restitution is really narrowly construed to out-of-pocket expenses. So if if I'm injured and I have a medical bill, that will be paid. You know, you can also get victim comp, but it's more complicated in Connecticut than Mass. You get victim comp, whatever. But then in Massachusetts, you you can get restitution if it's related to the crime. So let's say um, I was injured and I had to take time off of work. Like if it's related to the crime, you can mm-hmm. get rest- – so it's more broad. So And you can get you can have a restitution hearing and you present your evidence and it's, it's more inclusive of what the real cost of the crime was versus Connecticut's just more narrow. And I'm not really sure why that is, but that's just how it is. Right, it's almost like doing a medical appeal if you have something and you have to present all of your your evidence and um you know which kind of a little bit off topic but it's unique. I'm dealing with the office of the healthcare advocate in Connecticut which uh, on something and it's it's great to have that voice as well because if you don't get justice with a, a medical issue, you can go to this entity and they can advocate for you, but you do have to present your evidence like that, and I'm sure that many other states, you know, don't necessarily have that. So we are fortunate in a lot of ways, but like you say, there are differences in um, from 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 state to state. And, um, you know, like I say, I, I, I just think that people are emotionally so unprepared, and there's so many things that, by and large, they're not educated to the nuances of this, the time frames, what you need to do. And if you, it's to me, it's almost unrealistic to expect a victim who, you know, has not gone through what I have gone through in my life with all of these other things that I've had the resilience to uh, sort of send off or, or compartmentalize to expect them to come up with this in an articulate manner and whatnot or someone who doesn't write or someone doesn't feel capable, but, you know, and just the emotion is overpowering them with all of these different things they have to deal with. And this is just one part of the, one piece of the puzzle, Michelle. So I I don't know, I can't stress enough that um, they have to get the information early on. They have to let somebody know that, oh, I'm not capable of doing this, so who should I contact or you have to, you know, maybe get a, a, another relative or a friend and ally to help you seek out, you know, help in a, in, in a timely manner. Yeah, and the other thing is I know that I've had, um, I've had victims I've worked with who I'll say, you know, there's this victim impact statement and it's really important and it will help the judge, you know, know what you want to have happen. You know, the prosecutor will make a recommendation, probation will make a recommendation, defense will make a recommendation, and you can make a recommendation. <clears throat> and um, and then I'll notice that the victim is shutting down. So sometimes part of the issue is the victim may be illiterate, may not be able to write. So, yeah. you yeah. know, looking at, looking like approaching that, like is, 
you know, are you comfortable writing? You know, are there any issues? Like trying to de because I mean, you you get people in their life wherever they're at. So if they if they're illiterate and they can't write, they might have shame about that. So I've had people, and I'll say, you know, is it more comfortable if I write down kind of what you say? Um, so knowing mm-hmm. that that's okay to ask somebody else to, you know, listen, I can verbally express what I want or at least try to, and you can help me actually write it out. That would be helpful like that's not that's a that's completely okay and um and i know some victims they've had other people like victim advocates write it out for them because they can't they can't actually write it and you know just being aware that there's that other issue right they might have dyslexia i mean we have a we have a service in connecticut uh for you know with Chris Radio for people who are blind and visually impaired, and and there is a library library for the blind and visually impaired where you get, well, you know, where you get audiobooks and those types of things. That if you you have a physical impairment and you cannot turn pages, or you have, you know, you have dyslexia, or you are illiterate, or you are totally blind, there are all of these other variables that you might not know necessarily about the victim. Because let's face it. Not, not, uh, there, there are many more victims that probably have had more difficult lives, maybe, and I don't mean to be dis- disparaging, but I don't mean it to be, but with less education, less opportunity. And so, therefore, um, you know, they're going to have more challenges by and large. You know, I'm, I was just remembering when I was a victim advocate, we worked with this one family. I can talk about it because it became news, quote unquote. But, um, mm-hmm. They wanted to show, this was their issue, they wanted to show, I think it was 57 pictures, digital pictures, of the murdered victim before the the murder. Who he was, what he did, what his life was like, who his family was. And when they approached the prosecutor, the prosecutor said no. And so we said, well, let's ask the judge. And the judge said, okay. So we sat there. It was a three-hour, I believe, two to three hour victim impact statement where the the family showed fifty seven, I believe it was, or sixty three, I forget. It's like in uh, above wow. fifty pictures mm-hmm. of their family member. Who he was, in what he to did. The narrative, Michelle? What? In addition to the narrative. In addition to the narrative. And it this was the like they knew that the sentence was already predetermined. You know, they knew that the plea was offered. They knew what he was going to get, but they wanted this individual to know about the life they took. And when they first approached the prosecutor and the victim advocate in court, they said no. And I said, nope, we're not going to take that. We're going to talk to the judge. Talk to the judge. The judge said okay. And so, like, for them, that was the most important thing. And I remember when we did your victim impact statement, what was important to you was this picture of your dad. It was this huge picture that you went to Kinko's, I believe, and you made a you made a big, you blew it up. That was important. So it's sometimes when you work with someone like you, you get like the the victim may say, okay, what's really important to me is, you know, showing three pictures or showing fifty seven pictures or showing a big picture or, you know, something might be very important to the victim and they may not know how to navigate and get that piece of information out there. Um, you know, like working with a uh, someone who has experience with impact statements, you know, let's say someone lost, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars of jewelry, knowing that they can go try to get estimates, try to get um, – go to the jewelry stores where they bought the jewelry, try to get receipts. Like all, a lot of times – the court is like, oh, well, if you don't have the exact receipt, but if you present the judge with, okay, I went out and I spent all this time, I did my victim impact statement, and here are the estimates from jewelry. You know what I mean? Like thinking outside the box. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's one thing that I think you do really well, Donna, is you think outside the box, which then allows the victim to really have an impact on the sentencing, yeah. whatever that might be. Well, well, thank you. well this and might I be a good that, time. Donna, this might be a good time for you to explain to listeners exactly what your service is. Go into what what you offer and and how to get in touch with you and how far in advance should people um, 
get with you to uh, be able to do the best job that you can. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm trying to call up the one that has the general uh, information here. Um, there are there are there are basic services, and then there are more advanced services. But um, one second, while my computer is doing something funky here, while well, I'm opening it up. Here it is. Um, with regard to um, the, the the service, actually was created a couple of years ago. And for all the reasons that we, we talked about that they are needed and not to not to say that victim advocates do not do a good job when they insist or whatever, but for all the gaps and the reasons that we've described, I feel like we need this and I am the person to help in, in, in some ways because of, of my experience. Um there is there is a letter a letter of engagement that that we have for for people. Um, typically, basic uh, ba- basic services include an introductory consultation by telephone to review a questionnaire that is sent to the family. Um, then I would go ahead and research the history of the case and I would write a victim impact statement based upon the research, the questionnaire uh, information, and and the consultation, and then I would draft about three copies provided and mail, mail to the client. Um, extra services could be a follow-up consultation for further edits, research, mailings, or a face-to-face meeting at home in an office or a public place, um, and if applicable, uh, travel expenses. If they would want me to actually go to accompany them to court, that um, if it's out of state, if it requires airfare, ground transportation, meals, etc., there's a fee for that. There's also, um, you know, there are victims that need language interpretation uh, interpreters. Let's face it, not everyone is. Uh, American Standard English uh, speaking. Then they may be Spanish, French. Uh, they may be they may be deaf. Um, so you may require a language interpreter. And the other thing that we had thought of um, when Michelle and I were talking prior to our um, our our uh, presence at the parole hearing is what she alluded to is what if a victim does not want to go again and again to to a parole hearing or to a sentencing, such as my mom. You know, she's in her mid-80s, and this was her last one. And it would be so much easier um, if you could have the use of a professional uh, videographer to tape this to tape this um, statement because um, that way it would be archived and the person would not have to be coming again and again. And um, and unfortunately, if they pass away, their the record would still be there. Some other notes that I would say about it in general, and I can share some questions that I do in the phone consultation as well, but in terms of time frames, the client shall provide adequate notice, a minimum of two months to begin and complete an assignment. I will provide service to the best of my ability based upon the initial time frames given and if there's unforeseen uh, circumstances which would impact the completion, you know that's not that's not my that's not my fault. Essentially, we we would do our best. Confidentiality: the client agrees to protect the confidentiality and the information provided and exercise reasonable care within the prescribed agreement. Uh, the uh, the uh, the consultant will require prior approval by the client before releasing the impact statement or reading the statement in court. Um, language interpreters, if needed, requested. The service must be provided by the client. Um, however, I will provide a possible resource for a fee. Uh, I do have a resource for uh, videography that who has done this before that seems to be very well credentialed. Um, as well as state certified interpreters, maybe recommending someone. Um, the length of the consultation and the termination, 
This agreement begins upon signing by both parties and will continue as long as necessary. Either party may terminate the agreement in writing with 14 days' notice and full payment of fees incurred up to the date of termination. Now, in in general, um, the average one, and of course every case is different, um, well, I want money up front, um, all initial fees um, should be paid in full prior to the start of the assignment. Initial initial rate on, on average I would think maybe would take for the, the basic uh the basic services perhaps five hours, which would be two hundred and fifty dollars for five hours of work, including initial consultation, review of questionnaire, writing, three draft copies and mailing to the person. Um so uh and we also have a disclaimer here. Um, if if people would like to know a little bit about what I would ask on the first uh, phone consultation, there's a few questions just to let you know, just to kind of feel the waters and see if this is appropriate for them and to kind of get them mentally prepared. Um, I would ask things like, what are your expectations of this service? Um, can you provide me a brief overview of your case? Are you going to be the main spokesperson for this process? And why do you think you are the best person to, to do this or be the spokesperson? Because maybe I would differ after talking about, you know, the, the family situation. Uh, tell me about uh, media stories concerning your family member. Have, have, have there been any? Uh, ha, has, have, have the media por portrayals been fair and accurate? Um, in general, what do you think has been missing from, you know, so far how how the case has been portrayed. Um, if if you could tell the judge three important things about your family member, you know, uh, or what would they be, just to kind of get you in the time frame. Um, how do you think I can best help you with this, or what is your greatest need? And what are the time frames we're dealing with to to uh, to the best of your knowledge here? So in this way, I'm better prepared for kind of building a framework to see what, what we're dealing with here. And that's that's kind of how I initially proceed, um, you know, just to kind of give you the bare, bare bones of this. So, uh, And what, you know, what, if, if, a, if a person were to hire you to do this, what value would that be to them? I mean, it, it, I'm sure with everyone it's going to be something a little bit different. Um, but I think, in my opinion, just in, in looking at this objectively, I, if, I, if I were in that position, I would want to hire someone with your experience, your credentials, and uh, your professionalism to do this for me, simply because I'm out in the dark and... A lot of the, again, I, just like Michelle alluded to earlier, I've heard a lot of stories from people about victim advocates just really not having the same type of experience as someone who's already been a victim like you. How right. would you How would you address that to someone who's looking to is looking to hire you, but yet, you know, is kind of on the fence? What would you say to them as to, you know, why is it why hire me? What, yeah, why are they want to hire you? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm good. <laughs> no, um, I I think just like uh, we have alluded to, my my experience um, as a crime victim, and I'm not sort of fresh out of the gate. There's 35 years of perspective here. I I have a very different. Um, perspective than you do as someone who has just acutely been victimized. I have I have graduated from <laughs> from the school of hard knocks, but I was going to say I graduated from being a crime victim to being a survivor and and having the benefit of time and experience and dealing with a lot of other people. I have the benefit of knowing um, many people. To, to uh, pull resources from or to get advice from, such as people like Michelle, such as people like Will Marling, such as you know many uh, David Laban, many many other uh, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins, many other people that are very 
well known in the field of victim services if we had to to pull from them and 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 just by virtue of seeing the the volume of what I have done in terms of writing the quality and if you want to look at the you know and I would encourage people to listen to the many many podcasts which is going on four years in February by the way the plethora of well, issues that, that we have dealt with. That really does speak to the point too. It's kind of like, you know, one one thing I can sort of correlate this to is Cheryl McCollum in the Cold Case Institute, where she has a team of experts that she can call on, it's just like you right. do. You have a a, a a network of experts that you can call on. So if a person has a particular um, case that has some kind of a strange twist to it. You you are able to get a hold of these people to help you, and that and in turn helps that victim. Right. I I'm not saying that I know know everything that there is, but hopefully with you know all of this time and experience and knowledge under my belt, and having you know having resources uh, of other people, and unfortunately you know I would have had she still been with us. Susan Murphy Milano was a great resource. Um, but there are many other people that that you know we can pull from to to answer questions such as this. But again, people, but people, you know, there could be problems because people are in the throes of being very emotional and overwhelmed, and perhaps they are going to say, "Well, you know, I can't do this because I can't deal with it." Or if people are going to bring up, "Well, I can't afford this," I would say to them. How can you afford not to, given the income and given the given the outcome of what could happen if you do not get somebody to help you? And you know, in in truth, this this service has been out there for about two years now. So, if if they've been listening to this and they're saying, "Jesus is coming up," I would put aside ten dollars, you know, every month for this. You have to plan for an expense, just like you have to buy an appliance, you have to buy a new car. This is very important to your life. So I would say that this is something that is a good investment, Um, not to toot my own horn, but I've been giving away my services for many years, and I I need to start, you know, procuring a, a little bit of income for some of the services that I give away. It's not to say that I, I don't I don't um understand your situation but again I can't give away the farm all the time so I'm just saying that with someone with with my experience, um, it is only right to, to charge a reasonable fee. Um so, you know, that's my speech about that. Um and you know, so again, clients have to keep in mind that uh, they they have to give me enough time uh, to be able to to do this. I, I don't. I've had people approach me and say, "I want this done, but it's it's next week," and I have to turn them down and say, "Listen, I feel for your situation, but I rightfully I do not I do not want to get involved in a situation and excuse my French, do a shitty job just for the sake of saying, okay, I gave you something.' That is not me. I am about quality." So um, if people are listening now and they're having something coming up, you know, I at least need the minimum of two months to be able to help people. And I know that, I mean, in when I was a prosecutor, people would come in with attorneys and they'd say, you know, this is the attorney representing the victim. And, you know, I've been hired to represent victims before, and um, and in some cases that's really appropriate. But there are other cases where what they really need is a – triage service which Mm -hmm. is they need someone to help them make that impact statement and I not all attorneys have I mean there are attorneys who do victims rights like I do but not all attorneys know how to do that specific that specific um, task of the impact statement they Mm -hmm. may know how to make a legal argument but for the most part the, the victim impact statement is not a legal argument it's a impact statement from the victim and um so just to say $250 is a heck of a lot less than hiring an attorney, just saying. And um, 
Thank and, you. But the reality is sometimes that's all that's needed, you know, someone who can kind of say, okay, this is what the system is going to do, this is what's going to happen, but this is really where you have, you can make an impact on what's happening in the system. This is your opportunity. And um, and having someone help kind of choreograph that is it's an invaluable service. And it's a unique service because I don't, you know, I think sometimes, the impact statement is, you know, you're just talking about how the crime affected you, but you're not. You're this is an opportunity to to heal, to have a voice, to to let the offender know how the crime impacted you, how the let the judge know, let the community know, and to like you say, bec- move from being a victim to a survivor. Um, you know, I think it's important for the victim to 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 have that that exercise it's cathartic in a way to to say out loud or have someone say if they can't what happened to them and why this person should be held accountable and um it's an important part of the process you know i don't believe in closure i believe in moving forward and um and this is one of those steps and uh and the, the more that victims understand the process, that this is their, like, golden opportunity and how valuable this could be for them. Because, like I said, sometimes the judges just, they it doesn't change anything, but it changes the victim, you know. Yeah. Um, the goal has to be, this is this is my voice, this is what I need to say, and this is what needs to be heard by the offender in the court. Because if the goal is to change something, it's probably, that may not happen, but having an impact on, you know, what's being, what's what has happened in the criminal justice system is really important. Right, and what's what is most important to you out of, out of that menu that we we talked yeah. about earlier. And I have to say, you know, in all honesty, if people don't, you know, if not me, you can, you know, procure the services of somebody that that has similar background if they're willing to help you. I'm not saying I'm the only person in this entire country, but I you know, my my prime purpose in, in doing this show is to get the is to get the information, is to get the information out there and to kind of kind of let people know that there there's a lot of behind the scenes unknown variables and if you if you run up against obstacles and we did in this process. I, I can't stress enough the importance of getting uh, an attorney advocate that knows how to navigate the system, such as Michelle, um, if you are in her jurisdiction or other places, because to try to go in there cold and you, you are presented with problems such as we, we had in our parole hearing, um, you don't you don't want the you know the the most uh, the the worst outcome possible. You want the best, so you you need to also step back and and say we need to make an investment here. Um, so you know with that, I think we've given people a framework, a sort of a reality check, and and that way they can kind of go forward. We have a I have a number of blogs that I've written about victim impact. Again, it's different. It's a, a bit different from state to state, but there are a lot of things that are that are um, you know similar. So you know, if people want to get in touch with me and you have enough advance notice, I, I I welcome that. If if you're not interested, I respect that as well. But at least you have information about what you may be facing in the future, and it's about building awareness and and helping people with this radio show. Is that not right? Well, Donna, Bella? before we before we run out sure. of time. I- Sure. Um, give the listeners, well, it, both you and Michelle, give listeners um, information on how they can get a hold of you, uh, for it, both, because both of you are offering such wonderful services to victims, and your your passion and compassion for them <laughs> is just, you know, great. So I, I know people are going to want to get a hold of each of you. So if you give out your, your contact okay. information, that would be great. Sure. Uh, DonnaGore.com is my um, is is my website, and uh, you can get me through that. You uh, through that website. Uh, you can uh, through web WordPress. You can also get me through ImaginePublicity.com. Um, and um, once once I get that information and I I review that it's a, appropriate, I can give you further. Um, personal contact information in terms of a phone number and a and in a personal email. 
Um, and I have two Facebooks, Unshattered Wives Facebook, uh, a regular Donna Gore Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn, Donna R. Gore, because there are other Donna Gores. Um, Michelle, what would you say? Well, my email is easy. It's cruz, C-R-U-Z, 4, number 4, law, at gmail.com. And my Facebook page is Michelle S. Cruz. And I think I have a WordPress, right, <laughs> Delilah? Um, yeah. You have a, have a website. Page. Yeah, I have a website, too. Turncruz.com. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm horrible about technical stuff. But if you email me, I mean, generally I get people email me all the time. They ask questions. They may not engage in services, but I can usually refer them to someone who can help them or just answer a question or two. And, you know, it's all about sharing information. Great. Well, Michelle, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me here today. I think it was really valuable, and I hope lots of people listen on the archives as well, and we'll be sure to uh, to to encourage people to do so. So keep in touch, okay? And, and yeah, happy Halloween to everyone. Okay. All righty. Is that about it, Delilah? I think your time is up. Okay. Well, with that, we will uh, close out our edition and and stay tuned for the next next uh, Saturday edition of Her Shattered Life. And happy Halloween, everyone. Mm-hmm.